Well, good morning, North Lake Bible Church. It is such a joy to be able to say to you this morning, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. I was about to say, would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, but I did not want to give our pastor a heart attack. So we will remain in Philippians 3 this morning. As you turn there, just a series of questions to get our thinking juices flowing this morning. In your life, what do you consider to be of most value to you? Is it the things that you collect? Is it your money, which we heard last week? Is it a relationship? Your health? Your looks? Attention? Comfort? Your intellect? Your family? A home? An ability? A skill? I could keep going, couldn't I? What is that one thing where if everything else in the world went up in smoke, you would say, not this, not this, anything but this? What do you treasure? What do you consider to be gain for you? What's the most important thing to you in this life? Because how we answer questions like these reveals the condition of our heart. But for now, let's see the condition of Paul's heart. What was most important to him? What he treasured most in life? What was it? What was it about the life to come? Let's read our text this morning in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. The word of God reads, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Please pray with me. Father, please use this time as your word goes forth. Do your work in our lives by your living, perfect word. And may this weak vessel of yours be used to the glory and honor of your name. Father, help me to fade in the background, and may your son be exalted above all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this brings us to the theme of our morning, which would be why the value of knowing Christ is greater than anything else. Point number one, knowing Christ, verse 8, which is the great pursuit of the believer. You see, in the previous verses, verses 1 through 7 of our text this morning, Paul has warned the Philippians of false teachers, the Judaizers, who say you are to be righteous and you are to earn heaven by your works, by your own righteousness. And he shows us, Paul shows us in this text that, that that's sin, 
because that draws attention away from Christ's accomplished redemption. Paul tells the church how he once was one of those people. He thought he could earn his way to God as he put all his confidence in his own flesh and strength to keep the law and the 613 commandments which the Torah contains, including personal hygiene and diet. The Apostle Paul was a pro at all of them. And so, this was once Paul's greatest pride, his greatest honor and treasure in the world. He had all the religious trophies and praises of men for being a righteous man. He was the giant of religion, the superman of keeping the law externally, the best of the best when it came to being a Pharisee. And in all this, what did Paul do? In all this, Paul trusted and boasted. This was his old life before Christ. But then in verse 7 of our text this morning, we see his new life, his conversion, as he recalls it. What does he say in verse 7? Look, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in this section that we're going to look at this morning, Paul goes deeper into what he means. So not only did he consider all his religious works and self-righteousness a loss and waste to him in view of knowing Christ, look at what he says in verse 8. More than that, I consider or I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is Paul's letter A, Paul's exchange for trash, of trash for treasure. His exchange of trash for treasure. Paul is weighing everything he once considered dear and precious to him with what? With knowing Christ. There are two words in the Greek New Testament for the word know. By the way, this is going to be our main verb of the morning, K-N-O-W. No. These two words in the Greek go like this. The first one is oida. means to have knowledge about something, uh, to observe something by way of information, the, the facts, to have facts about an animal, about a planet, about a sport, about a person. That's oida. The other is gnosko, which means to intimately, personally, experientially Know something or someone. It's often used of a husband and wife relationship as they know each other deeper and different than how they know anyone else. It's one thing to know about baseball in your head, to, to have the facts. It's a completely different thing to know baseball, to have the dirt in the grass, in your teeth, to have the bat, to have the glove, to be in it, to experience it. It's one thing to know about flying. It's completely another thing to know flying. Like if you're a pilot or if it's the first time that you've ever flown before. Listen, it's one thing to know about the facts of Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing to have a passionate longing for him to have a deepened personal union with him. Listen, turn in your pages, in your Bible, just back a page or two to Philippians 121, 
and see what Paul said. One of the most comprehensive sentences in all of Scripture. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. (laughs) Now, just a quick note. In the Greek here, if you were to read it in the original language, there is no linking helping verb. How it would read is, for me to live, Christ. That's strong language. That's a huge point. Because if I said to you this morning, for me to live, motorcycles. For me to live, gummy bears. Okay, you know both of my weaknesses in life. Motorcycles and gummy bears. Do not talk to me about it afterwards. We could go on in other examples. For me to live, family. Oh, family. For me to live, my wife. We get the point. Paul's reason for living, for being, is Christ. To know him. Paul is telling the church, whatever achievements I had in life, whatever glory I had in the sight of man, whatever good things I've done before the eyes of men, whatever temporal success, whatever treasures I've gained in this life by keeping the law, and no one kept the law like the Apostle Paul, he says, I add it all up, and it equals rubbish, trash. In the Greek, kids, you'll like this, manure. Manure. That's what it equaled. Paul had a gain column and he had a loss column. Whatever once went into his gain column, his power, his position, his performance, now goes into the loss column, the rubbish pile. This is life transformation. But why? Why such extreme language, Paul? Because upon his conversion on the Damascus Road in seeing and hearing from the resurrected Christ and spending three years in Arabia, Paul counted the cost. Paul counts the cost to gain Christ. The end of verse 8. Paul says, for Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. There's a huge transaction that's going on here. Dear people this morning, you cannot hold on to self-confidence and Christ. You cannot hold on to self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness. You cannot hold on to pride and possessions and Christ. You cannot hold on to secret sin and Christ. You cannot hold on to anything plus Christ. My father so lovingly and so truthfully would always tell me, whether it was rewards that I would get in karate or sports, or even when I would bring dear children into my home, he would say, dear son, hold loosely. Enjoy it. Hold loosely. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, none of you can be my disciple unless you give up all. Listen carefully to what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Listen, Moses counted the cost. He considered the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. The disciples counted the cost 
They left their nets their whole life to follow Christ. Mary Magdalene counted the cost as she risked being scorned when she showed extravagant love for her Savior as she poured all of her perfume, a year's worth of wages, over the Savior's body. Zacchaeus counted the cost and proved that by giving up his old life of extortion and thievery and giving it back fourfold. So too, Paul counted his entire life Suffering the loss of all that was once valuable and precious to him to gain a shared life with Christ. So much so that he says in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This was Paul's manifesto, his aim in life. Christ. Christ. Because when one sees Christ and his glory, then Christ and his continued glory is our aim as well, is it not? And hopefully we'll see why in our remaining moments together as we look to the justification of the believer. Point to the justification of the believer, verse 9. No, the word justification is not here in verse 9. You don't see that in your Bibles, but you see the reality of it. Paul says... As we come to verse 9, I want to be found. This is actually in the Greek where we get the word eureka. Discovered. I want to be discovered. I want to be found in him or in Christ. This is one of Paul's most favorite phrases throughout all of his letters. Why? Because Paul knows it makes the difference in eternity if you are found outside of Christ or inside of Christ. Romans chapter 5 explains to us, gives two categories of people in the world. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Listen, there's all this talk about, we don't talk about Bruno as Disney has shown to us and he gets a bad rap in the Luca film and the Encanto film. Sure, we don't talk about Bruno. No, the, the problem is for us sometimes is, is that we don't want to talk about Adam. Because he's brought the curse. He's, get, he's got the bad rap. <laughs> he's one of the, in our minds, even in, in, in all these different films, like, no, you know, having too many negative thoughts about yourself because of wrongdoing, misfortune, there's a curse. No, it's more difficult to talk about Adam because this is where most of the world is, and this is where you and I, if we're in Christ, once were. So Romans chapter 5, two categories of people. You're either in Adam or in Christ. Real briefly, what does it look like for those who are in Adam? Hang with me now. If you're in Adam, who is the federal head of the human race, he is the representative. And if you say this morning, oh, that's not fair. I get the curse, I get the effects of the fall because of him. Remember, if you and I were Adam, or if you and I were Eve, what would we have done? The same thing. And so he's our representative. He's our federal head. And we're in Adam if we're not in Christ. And in Adam looks like this. You're dead in sin, Ephesians 2. It means you're haters of God, Titus 3. It means you're self-righteous, Romans 6. It means you're without hope in this world, without God, being deceived by sin, Ephesians 2. You're believing the lies of the world. You're an enemy of God. You're unrighteous. You're on your hell-bound road. 
that's what it looks like if you were in Adam. But if you're in Christ, this is what it looks like. Forgiven. Saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Adopted. Cleansed. Because he then is the federal head and the representative of those whose faith and trust is in him. The question is then, how can one be found, be discovered righteous in Christ? Is it because of my attempts at being righteous? My good deeds outweighing my bad ones? Well, that's like a criminal standing before a judge, right? And saying, I've done many good things. I washed your car on the way in. I painted the, the court's hallways. I've loved my family for the most part. Don't my good deeds make me okay with the law that I've broken? Not before a holy God, which we're going to sing at the end of today's service. How silly, what a thought, but most of the world thinks this way. My good deeds can outweigh my bad. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, Our good deeds are equal to filthy rags before a holy God. Listen, <laughs> Jesus had to die for our good deeds. That's how tainted they are with sin. So how can we be found in Christ, found not guilty of our sin? How can a righteous judge pardon sinners who we need to be pure? We need to be holy. We need to be spotless. We need to be made right with God. We need to be justified. This is what Paul is essentially saying in verse 9. What is justification? Justification is God's judicial act of removing the penalty and guilt of sin while at the same time declaring the ungodly to be righteous through faith in Christ's sacrifice. This is incredible. Because the righteousness of God which comes by faith in Christ. By faith, Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Beloved, this is our standing. Justification is that one-time declaration by God in heaven's courtroom where he brings the gavel down hard and declares the sinner now not only not guilty, but righteous. <laughs> righteous because the holy sacrificial lamb of God took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That, as the theologians call it, is the greatest exchange in the universe. God then not only looks at you as though you've never sinned before, greater than that, he looks at you as though you are the very righteousness of his son. Listen. Listen very carefully. <laughs> in heaven, you will be no more righteous than you are right now if you are found in Christ. Try to wrap your mind around that. Oh, yeah, neither could I. You will be no more righteous than you are now. This has taken place at the cross and in predestination, in the doctrine of election, it has taken place in eternity past. 
This is the righteousness that Paul is excited about. The righteousness that is by faith in God's labor of love for the chief of sinners. He recognizes here that justification is not based on his achievements by external obedience to the law, but by God's righteousness, by trusting in his son who kept the law on his behalf and credits that righteousness to Paul. Dear teenagers, dear students, dear youth this morning, if this isn't making sense, imagine you lived all of your school life, even up through college, and all that you got were F, 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 F. Christ steps in and lives it all, does it all for you, and you get an A plus on everything. I think that would cause you to love the person (laughs) that did that for you. And you want to know him more. Well, this is real. This is the living word of God that has declared us this morning. So, like Paul, we too must abandon all reliance of self and law-keeping because we fall short of the glory of God. We must abandon it all. You do not become righteous by your works, by your good deeds, by your good thoughts. It's in faith in Christ alone. That's how you're found to be in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop here in his love for Christ and knowing him more. We see the sanctification of the believer, verse 10. Now Paul says he wants to know him even more, to have a deeper knowledge and union with Jesus in three ways we see here in verse 10. Power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Sanctification by resurrection power. Paul says here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. (laughs) Now the word power here is where we get the word, the English word dynamite, but there was no dynamite in the first century. So just a little help with this word. This word doesn't mean explosion, although you could say there's been a gospel explosion in my life. Sure, indeed. But it rather refers to the ability, the might, the strength, the power that is ongoing. The same word for power here is in Jude 24 and in Ephesians 3.20 where it says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, blameless before his throne of glory with great joy. Now unto him who is able. That's the power that we're talking about here. The power of Jesus' resurrection is not like fireworks, which are cool for a moment, but then fizzle out and have no ongoing lasting effects or purpose. In Jesus raising himself from the dead, what power do we see? That he is indeed the son of God, Romans 1, 4. We see that he has complete power over both the physical and spiritual worlds, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. His resurrection proves his power over sin and death and Satan, Colossians 2, 14. His resurrection is the great amen of the Father. His sacrifice satisfied the holy wrath of God against sin. It was accepted as perfect payment because he is the perfect lamb of God. And if he had any sin in him, he would not have had victory over the grave. So Paul cries out, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Because 1 Peter 1.3 says, we have a living, constant hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, 
then we are people most to be pitied because our faith is worthless and we are still dead in our sins. Would you say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters? (laughs) Paul knows that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Romans 6, our old self was crucified in him, and if we are united in his death, then we will be united with him in his resurrection power. And we can walk in the newness of life now because he is risen. He is alive, and that changes everything. It changes everything. No wonder Paul wants to know him in his resurrection. No wonder he wants to know his resurrected champion more. Who is your champion? Dear friends, Easter is not about a spring Sunday afternoon filled with pastel eggs, bunnies, and peeps, as much as I enjoy those things. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says to her, do you believe this? And I ask you the same question this morning. Do you believe this? Are you knowing him and the power of his resurrection? It changed Mary. It changed Lydia. It changed Peter, James, John. It changed Paul's life. But we go on further to further sanctification. Letter B, sanctification by the fellowship of suffering. Now Paul says he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, Paul, we were at a high point on the resurrection. Don't bring us to suffering. He brings us to sufferings. No, Paul Paul doesn't enjoy pain. He doesn't think he will gain more righteousness through suffering. But Paul would grow closer in his walk with the Lord by knowing some of his sufferings that Jesus went through. It created a closer bond between him and his resurrected Lord, you can understand this, right? You've had a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a friend, perhaps has had the same weakness or illness, and it brings a closer bond, a closer kind of fellowship. Fellowship, this word koinonia, means communion, partnership, to share together in the same thing. Paul shared with Christ in suffering, but for what purpose? To proclaim the gospel. Paul was, 2 Corinthians 11, shipwrecked, stoned, whipped, dragged through the city, beaten with rods, mocked, imprisoned, left for dead on several occasions. Why? What did he do? (laughs) He confronted sin. He proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. He called men to repent and be saved. That's what he did. The same thing as Jesus did. And, And what did the people do? They nailed him to a tree. Other apostles experienced similar sufferings as Jesus, and they counted it a joy, Acts 5.41. They went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. (laughs) This partnership with Christ and his sufferings caused Paul to love him more and more, knowing, knowing what he went through for his salvation. Listen, beloved, this morning, if... If you suffer at all for speaking the name of Jesus and living for him, Jesus says you are blessed because it's further proof that you're his and great is your reward in heaven, Matthew 5.11. And 1 Peter 4.14 says, if you suffer for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory rests 
on you. It should be cause for us to go out and suffer for Jesus right now, right? Paul knows this is a part of his sanctification, growing in holiness, in knowing him more, the fellowship of his sufferings. And that brings us to the sanctification by conformity to his death, just briefly. Paul says, being conformed, shaped, even to the likeness, the similarity of his death. In other words, Paul is stating here, he's willing to suffer for the cause of Christ if it meant his life in order to reach sinners with the gospel. Listen, it's been said, the problem with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. This isn't to say that you should be out on a mission to die, but it is to say all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and sometimes even unto death. 2 Timothy 3.12 promises. Paul was not some evangelistic extremist seeking fame in martyrdom's history. Rather, his willingness to be conformed to his Lord's death showed how much he knew and loved him even for the salvation of the lost, if it would cost him his life. So the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, these realities, these truths sanctify us more and more, causing us to know him more and drawing us nearer to him while on earth, which brings us to the state of our ultimate knowing, our ultimate knowing, which is the believer's glorification. Verse 11. Why does Paul want to know him more and more in the power of his resurrection and suffering and death? Are you ready for this? So that he may know him even more. <laughs> Are we done with this verb yet this morning? So that he might know him more. So that I may come to the resurrection, arrive at the resurrection from the dead, or literally that I may come out of the corpses. If you notice... In the beginning of verse 10 and 11, there's resurrection bookends here. The first resurrection has to do with Christ's resurrection and the power that we have in him. The second one says, I want to be there too. I want that as well. The resurrection from the dead for the believer means no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. It means a glorified, perfect mind and body that is fit to see, to be with, to know like we've never known our precious, resurrected Savior, King. Heaven will be awesome with streets of transparent gold, gates made of pearl, the crystal throne, even rewards perfect fellowship with one another, no more evil in our hearts. We will experience all this in the resurrection. But what is Paul really running after in his glorif glorification in attaining to the resurrection? To be with his Savior and to be made like his Savior. How do I know that? Well, I cheated and I went further in our text this morning. Look at Philippians 3, 20 to 21. This is what the whole passage is about. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In that one sentence, you have both sanctification and glorification presented to us. Heaven and Christ, Christ and heaven, one and the same. 1 John 3, 2 
The Apostle John says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul looks to the day when he will be glorified with his Savior, when he, by God's grace, because of Christ's righteousness, not his own, comes to the resurrection from the dead. No wonder Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, another comprehensive statement here, who is our life. (laughs) Memorize Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We need to get our mind on things above. (laughs) Listen, the video games, uh, the movies of our day, all that the world throws at us, the the, the wow, the pizzazz of theatrics that so easily distracts us and makes us crave here instead of where our true citizenship is. He's our life. And when he's revealed, we'll be revealed with him in glory. Dear congregation, your your glorification is all about the power of Jesus bringing you also to the resurrection from the dead. (laughs) Two truths regarding the resurrection. Number one, all people will be resurrected. John 5, 28. Number two, not all will be raised unto life. John 5, 29. Jesus says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth who did the good to a resurrection of life and glorification. Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. The good there is not of your good works. The good there is of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who committed the evil, that is of those who did not believe. Jesus says there is a resurrection unto death and one unto life. Which resurrection will you be a part of? Dear unbeliever this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Cry out, God be merciful to me the sinner. And guess what? Today you'll go home justified, sanctified. And your glorification is certain because of the resurrection. Because he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus when on that day you will see his face. Revelation 22, verse 4. See his face. (laughs) So Paul says... After knowing Jesus according to justification and knowing him more in sanctification, oh, how I can't wait to know him in glory on resurrection day. The verb to know has been our main verb for the morning. Now, please bear with me just for a moment as we begin to wrap up our time. Take Moses, for example. (laughs) Wouldn't you say that Moses knew God very well, more than anyone else. 
we're so often dependent upon our own senses and experiences in order to think we really know something and are really acquainted with something. And we think sometimes, oh, if only I could see God, like kind of like Moses, I would love him more. I would want to know him more. I'd want to obey him more. Well, in Exodus 33, before the tabernacle was established by God, Moses' tent became the special meeting place for Moses to talk intimately with God. This was known as the tent of meeting, made outside the camp where the Israelites lived. And there, Moses would talk to God, as the scriptures say, face to face, as a man speaks to a friend. Now, in modern day language, we would say something like, that's mind-blowing, I think. What's interesting is, put yourself in Moses' sandal now. He talks with God face to face every day. He knows God. He had that experience with God that all of us want, that literal physical experience of a little bit of heaven on earth. Moses has these experiences that no one else has in Exodus 33. And then in verse 13 of Exodus 33, he short circuits this whole idea of physical experience, of emotion, of some transcendental experience. He he short circuits it all. What does he say in Exodus 33, 13? Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. Whoa, wait, stop. Hold on one second. You want to know God, Moses? (laughs) Just go outside to the tent. Go to the tent. Talk to him. Here's the thing. Even shortly after that, when he experiences a sliver of his glory, as he hides him in the cleft of the rock and, and he passes by, the backside passes by, and his face is showing before Israel. Here's the thing. Moses' experience with God wasn't enough to satisfy him. You know why? Because it didn't last. He had to leave the tent. He had to go back home to his family to eat dinner. He had to shepherd the people. So what was Moses asking? Lord, I want to know you in an ongoing, continual, unbroken way. Moses says, I want to know you outside the tent. In all of life. Okay, cool, let's do that. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 17. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Jesus peels back his flesh to show them his glory. And remember who was there? Elijah and... Moses. Now, say we were there and we went up to Moses and said, Moses, what do you think about this? I assume he might say something like, this is a greater revelation of God than I ever had. Why? Because the Son reveals, communicates, explains God, Hebrews 1. He shows us the Father, John 14. Now, okay, cool, let's fast forward to today. We're sitting at Starbucks with Moses. Who knows God so well? And we asked, Moses, what is it like to know God as you know him? You know what I think Moses would say? He said, well, I experienced the tent of meeting, the Red Sea, the burning bush, Mount Sinai experiences with God, even the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. But I 
can give you four clearer, sufficient revelations of God than have ever been seen or experienced. Matthew, Mark, Luke, help me now, and John. Oh, and the rest of the New Testament, by the way. Really? That's what you're going to give me? Yes. I'm going to give you the word of God. Knowing and treasuring Christ doesn't happen by gazing upon the Mount of Transfiguration or looking for a feeling or a a shiver in your liver or some sort of experience or a, a voice in the wind or a cloud in the sky. We don't know and treasure Christ that way. Why? Because as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, we have a more sure word, the very written word of God, which God himself exalts above all experiences. So I ask you, do you want to know him more? Spurgeon, in closing, says, he who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. Whoever hath sipped this wine will thirst for more. For although Christ doth satisfy, yet it is such a satisfaction that the appetite is not quenched, but wetted. If you know the love of Jesus, as the deer panteth for the water brooks, so will you pant after deeper streams of his love. If you do not desire to know him better, then you love him not. For love always cries nearer, nearer. In closing, how do we respond? What's our application? First, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, count the cost. You need to count the cost. You need to exchange the trash of self-righteousness and of all things for Christ. It will cost you this, living for self and stuff, fame and fortune, friends and family, perhaps even your job. It will cost you your life. What are you holding on to? What do you consider gain? Jesus said, if you gain the whole world, you forfeit your soul. And by the way, even if you owned the whole world, as Augustine said, you will be restless until your rest is in him alone. Dear unbeliever, this morning, count the cost and come to Christ. He said, Jesus said, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden people, you, you law-abiding citizens, laden by the world's religiosities and moral do-goods, you who are burdened by your sin, and I will give you rest, true rest for your souls. Count the cost, come to Christ on the basis of faith in him, and you will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Listen, tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow, today is Christ's. Believe on him today. And number two, for the believer, we need to know him more. <laughs> oh, is this your, the read your Bible more sermon? Yes, it is. <laughs> Is this the pray more sermon? Yes, it is. 
Dear believer, know this, your worship will only soar as high as your knowledge of Christ by his word goes deep. Your worship will only soar as high as your knowledge of Christ by his word goes deep. And that will apply and filter through to every other facet of your life. The Christian is in the joyful duty and relationship of actively knowing, gazing upon Jesus. So much so that you find yourself treasuring his word in your heart so that you may not sin against him. So much so that you put off the old man, you renew your mind with the truth, and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. The Christian is in the business of killing sin and following the Savior and knowing him more. This is the path and pattern of the Christian life for us to know and treasure him more today than we did yesterday. Lord, help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, you, by your sovereign grace, have brought us to see the value of knowing Christ our Lord. And and in light of knowing him, everything else has become like refuse. Because you've caused us to see that our only hope was a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. Your righteousness, your robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange. May our desire be like Paul's, to know you better, to grow in our understanding of your life, your death, your resurrection, knowing we will be raised to new life with you and be in your presence forever. Help us, Lord, to know these things and to apply them by faith. Help us to live seeing, loving, serving, following you to the glory of your great name because of the lamb that was slain for sinners like us to make us righteous, to bring us, to draw us to yourself. Help us, Lord, to glorify your name in all of life and lip. And when we stumble, when we fail, when we sin, help us to know, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For by your wounds, we were healed. Father, may our song be meaningful. May our life be one huge song and thank you note of praise to you for who you are and all that you've done for us. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.